Today, let's see if we can tell the difference between our culture and the gospel. If Angela Lansbury were available, I'd have her sing the words, A Challenge Old as Time. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. In this process, uh, I am, I, I'm not coming at it to say one culture or the other has an advantage when it comes to relating to the gospel. There's something to be said there. There are cultures where the gospel would be better received or where the worldview would be more accepting. For instance, uh, would include in it a, a sense of the supernatural. That would be an advantage. Uh, for Christianity, where the resurrection is essential to it. So th- there are differences between the cultures in terms of their value for transmitting the gospel. That's not what this is about. This is about identifying the gospel and being able to distinguish it from the culture, not because we can preserve a pure gospel in the way we live out our lives, because we, are, we have to live out our lives within a context and within a culture. I don't mind that. I just want to make sure that we're aware of the difference and that we're thinking about what it is that we're claiming to transmit and then what we're actually transmitting. You'll, you'll see what I mean as we go through it. Uh, and I do think it's worth it. It's, it's kind of a long journey to get there. Uh, but if you'll hang with me, I think it's worth it in the end to recognize where we're going to get. And all, ultimately, we are going to be addressing the question uh, that the apostles had to address in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council. Uh, so we will we will get to that point eventually. On the way there, I think the first step is just identifying the gospel, just plain and simple, and and putting it in not these are not necessarily the simplest terms they're not the only way to describe the essence of the gospel but it's a good way uh, and that is to identify the gospel in its context in 1 Corinthians 15 so there's a sense in which people have started using the word gospel way too broadly so as sort of a placeholder for all of Christianity So, you know, that's a gospel thing, and therefore we can talk about it in church, or that's not a gospel thing, and therefore we can't talk about it in church. And there's a a sense in which that's legitimate because, you know, we refer to the New Testament biographies of Jesus as gospels, and that is the content, the bulk of what Christianity is all about, is Jesus having come into the world and the influence and teaching that he brings and the transformation and redemption that he offers and so on. So there's a sense in which the gospel as Christianity is, you know, sort of a legitimate exchange or metaphor, and, and in truth, it's just a, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a metaphor where one part is representing the whole. Synecdoche is what that's is what that's called. It, if we used the word gospel like that, which is a really weird, abstract synecdoche for people who know imagery, uh, it's okay. But 
in the other sense, it's too broad. To use the word gospel as a representation of all of Christianity is to use it too broadly because the euangelion, the evangelium, the gospel, is about the message of Christianity, especially as it is presented to and received by those who are not yet in Christianity. So it's the good news to the people who are outside. This is how Paul talks about it, even when he's speaking to believers about how to identify what the gospel is in that chapter I mentioned, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, reading Paul's words, we'll only be in Paul for a minute. We're going to spend the rest of our time outside of it, talking about our culture and stuff like that, but then coming back to James and Peter instead. But in Paul, it is, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you now stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word, that I preached to you unless you have believed in vain. So they're coming to faith and coming into this message of the gospel is what allows them now to live out what acts as a a validation or a verification of the gospel's truth, the message that we take to the lost. So you know, for so so as an example of what I mean by saying it would be too broad to say everything we teach in Christianity is the gospel and that's all there is, you know, instruction on how a pastor, for instance, should treat the younger women in his congregation in 1 Timothy 5.1, right? That's not the gospel. That's not the good news. Oh, look, I finally learned how I'm supposed to treat younger women. It is important to learn that lesson, and it's a lesson that ought to be learned outside of Christianity. But it's a lesson that's learned morally and practically and prudentially and, you know, with general wisdom. And to call that the gospel, I think it's just using the word too broadly. So, you know, it is, uh, it, that's that teaching, for instance, how a pastor ought to treat different groups of people, if you read that passage in 1 Timothy 5, where Paul is teaching Timothy how to be a pastor. It, that is a natural outflow of the new relationships that we have in the community of faith and some people call that the gospel. So you're in the gospel. But again, it's it's just a, a, a synecdoche of kinds or a metaphor of kinds. So even when some people do call it the gospel, it's not the euangelion. It's not the message that we're communicating. We don't go to the lost and say, well, if you would just learn how to treat women better, you could be uh, you could be a Christian. I mean, that's not, that's not the path to Christianity. That's not finding the way. Okay. So the question that would remain then is what the actual content of the good news is in its essence. And I think one way to put that, probably the simplest way to put it, is uh, in that message in 1 Corinthians 15. And it just comes down to two things. Uh, All of the other ingredients are just extrapolations from the core of the message about the gospel, which is that Christ died for our sins and that he was raised. Everything else is just intervening language to clarify exactly what he's talking about or to verify it or to give some kind of background to it or to say it's in, in comportment with Scripture and uh, and even ends with simply saying, that's what we preached and that's what you believed in verse 11. So in those first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, it really comes down to his death and resurrection. And the death of Christ is about the realization, and, I, and again, I'm simplifying this. I'm not pretending this is all-inclusive. But at the core essence, the the simplest way to put it, in my view, and again, there are other simple ways to put it, you would talk about his death and resurrection, and in his death, what you'd be implying is the realization of his identification with humanity, that he chose, even though he was in the form of God, not to be with God, but to to take on 
the, the, the form of humanity actually to become a human being and to humble himself and so on. So the realization of his identification with humanity, I'm quoting all of that from Philippians 2. Well, lightly paraphrasing, we'll say. And then the other thing his death does is release us from our past, what was due to us. The idea in 2 Corinthians 5 that he became sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him, that exchange or freedom from our past. That's his death. And then his resurrection the realization of his identification with God, that he is Lord. So in his death, his identification with humanity, and his, in his resurrection, his identification with God. It's the culmination of what's going on in the, the Pentecost sermon when Peter is saying God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The culmination of that statement is all the way down in verse 36 of that sermon in Acts 2, when he says, so let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The resurrection was the verification that he is still Lord over this world, but the one who created it. The, and then, but the resurrection also does this, as just as his death released us from our past, his resurrection releases us from our otherwise certain future. Uh, and that's the point of, you know, passages like Hebrews 2, uh, where he talks about Christ destroying the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so in the resurrection, we have hope. Uh, restored to us as well. So, you know, all I think that, you know, when it comes down to it, and my working through the book of Acts a few years ago really, really clarified for me what they had at the core of their kerygma. And it, it always comes down to those two things. It's the death and resurrection of Christ in the whole Christ experience. That's what the that's what the weight of the gospel comes down to. Now, again, there's so much more to it than that. We all know that, and there are other ways to express it, but it's not hard to see that as a way of uh, communicating the essence of the gospel or a simple form of the essence of the gospel. Okay, so then what we have to consider is how do we, how do we see that passed down through time so that what we're saying as Christians in the 21st century is not something inherently different than what a believer in the first century would have said uh, immediately following Christ's resurrection. Uh, because you can imagine if somebody like that were to sit in one of our churches, that it would not be hard for that person to look at what we're doing and go, and you people think you're following Christ? I mean, I did Christianity. This doesn't look like Christianity. Or for that person to say, wow, well, you know, different language and sort of different habits and, and patterns, but this is the message that we preached. And I can't believe it's still here 21 centuries later. I could see it going either way. And so the, the question we have is, you know, how, how is that transmitted and are we being true in our transmission of it, right? And so in one sense, the whole message is obviously unchanging. In one sense, there's no doubt that there's no change to the way the gospel is transmitted from one generation to the next in our, in, in, and again, I'm not just saying the gospel in its essence, I'm saying the way we transmit the gospel over time can also change over time. And in one sense, that transmission is unchanging. So just as a, a super short, simple example, if we pick the Middle Ages, then we have 
these unbelievably powerful metaphors that are the Arthurian legends, right? So, uh, and, and I, it doesn't matter where you find it or which legend you turn to. There is a wasteland, you know, a fallen world that's empty and needs to be redeemed. There is a fisher king who's wounded and waiting for someone to bring the redemption to the world. And then there is the the messianic figure, you know, the Gawain or Lancelot or Percival who's going to come and, and find the Holy Grail and bring salvation to the world. And of course, because we haven't seen the culmination of the kingdom arriving in this world, the Arthurian legends always end with no one having found the Holy Grail. Uh, and that's just part of the message that we still have to live in faith. We still have to say, Lord, how long? All, all of that and the power of the most powerful literature in one era after the next in societies where Christianity has been pervasive, you know, those images are are just the same. And so in the modern era, if you want to do it in a you know, a sort of trivial way. You just say, okay, instead of a wasteland, we have a corrupt Gotham, and instead of a Fisher King, we have a Commissioner Gordon, and instead of a Godwin Lancelot Percival, we have a Batman, right? So the 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 idea and the fact that there never is a resolution to all the darkness that's in the world. It's just, it's always still going to be there. All of that is communicating the same idea. So in one sense, and those are means of transmission of values and ideas, and I get it that they don't preach the gospel directly, but they communicate the structures and patterns of thought that open us to what the gospel is. And so the fact that those transmission methods are so similar in the types of stories and myths and legends that we communicate with each other and pass down from one generation to the next, and if you think to yourself, well, I don't know all that Arthurian stuff, you're just wrong. You're, you're not given all the language of the Arthurian stuff, but the fact that you see it in movies and books and poems and everything that you do, you can't escape because every every good author is using those stories as foundations to a lot of what they're writing and doing. Okay, you get the idea. So in one sense, that means of transmission is unchanging, but in another sense, it obviously changes. And, and you know, the, the exact form, therefore, that our expression of Christianity takes uh, also changes. So when we are, for instance, speaking to the world's outcast, as Jesus did, you know, he, he was definitely going to the impoverished. I mean, this, this is the Gospels brag about this. When we're going to the world's outcast, when we're, in other words, situated in a context or a culture where people have been excluded from the centers of power and prosperity in the world, when we're going to the world's outcast, then our message, the thing we're transmitting, is the invitation to be part of a kingdom that's beyond this world. And I'm not just saying that's the gospel message we give. I'm saying in the way we communicate it about it weekly in our church services, the way we illustrate it, the way we write about it, the way we play it out in a drama, those change the way we communicate if we're in a world that's filled with outcasts. In, 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 in contrast to that, to the world's powerful, you know, when we're in a context, as we are, when we're in a context where people do have power, they do have prosperity, then the invitation is different. Where we're saying to the world's outcast, here's an invitation to be part of a kingdom beyond this world. We say to the world's powerful, here's an invitation to forfeit the world's power and to bring the kingdom to others right here and now. This is the idea that's going on in the book of James, as, as clear as it can possibly be stated. 
Let the lowly brother, the outcast, this is in James 1, boast in his exaltation. So we say to them, hey, you're a part of a kingdom that makes you equal with everyone else and brings you a power and prosperity you never had before. Not just in this world, because that's not of any great value, but for eternity. So let the brother of low degree rejoice in his exaltation, but in verse 10 of, of James 1, but the rich should rejoice in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he's going to pass away anyway. The sun rises with its scorching heat, withers the grass. If flower, uh, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also the rich man fades away in the midst of his pursuits. There's this statement in James where he immediately juxtaposes the two different kinds of people that we have to represent the gospel to. And, when, and by doing that says, you know, well, of course, to those who'd been outcast, we're inviting them to a prosperity and power they never had before in the kingdom of heaven. And to the wealthy, we're saying, you are going to lose all this stuff anyway. So here's an opportunity to give up what's going to perish anyway in favor of what endures forever. So we, we're communicating that gospel differently to these two different groups. So obviously in cultures that are dominated by one group or the other, the gospel is going to take on a form of transmission that has metaphors that are different. And by the way, just to make clear that that's not uh, an accidental event in James 1, uh, a little ancillary thought that James has on the way to other more important issues. By the time he's into James 2, it's not being partial between the rich and the poor and not telling a poor man to sit over there and the rich man to sit up here up front where we can give you prominence and, and telling them in James 2 not that, that your faith is empty. It's vain if you're sending away the poor while they're still hungry. And by the time he gets to James 5, the end of the book, he's using direct language to the powerful in contrast to the needy, the outcast, not saying that one can be Christians and the other not, but saying that we have to learn to use our power to serve those who are excluded. And when we don't, we face consequences of it. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, who kept, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of the hosts, of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he doesn't even resist you. And the point of this is saying, he doesn't resist you, therefore his God is taking up his cause. And his invitation to them is not to be condemned. His invitation to them is to make the right choice about which kingdom they're serving so that God takes up their cause as well. That's the point of it. So to a context of, of servitude or poverty, we're saying you have an advocate, a God who cares about the suffering you're facing, to, and, and this is in that context where a person is in servitude or where a person's living in poverty, that, that verse that we used up, let the brother of low degree rejoice in his exaltation. We're saying you have a God who cares about the suffering you're facing, who has come to be with you while you suffer, who promises he will deliver you one day from it. And in that promise delivers you from it even today so that you can have peace. To those who are in power or prosperity, then he's saying that next verse, let the rich rejoice in his humiliation because you have something better to live for than the constantly disappointing gains you've endlessly chased through this life. What has changed in the message is not the gospel, not its core, that Christ died for our sins and rose to declare his lordship, but rather the central metaphors that he raises with the audience, which is the means of getting the message to take root 
and therefore be transmitted from one generation to the next. It's the metaphors that have changed, not the core of the message. So there is, and I would love to dwell here, but I can't. We'll have to do another, uh, another conversation about it sometime. But there's a huge difference between Reinhold Niebuhr and James Cone. And if you, if you don't know the two, Reinhold Niebuhr, one of the most prominent theologian ethicists of the 20th century, white. James Cone, one of the most prominent theologians, thinkers of the 20th century in the black community, Christian theological community. And, and Cone talks about the difference between uh, his understanding of the gospel and Reinhold Niebuhr's understanding of it in The Cross and the Lynching Tree, a book that's just, fit. I mean, you talk about a book hard to get through, not, not intellectually, but convicting, powerful, uh, condemnatory in some senses, revelatory in other senses. And there are parts of it, maybe two or three sentences, where I would go, oh, yeah, that, that theology doesn't seem quite right. But the rest of it is just begging to be understood by believers. And uh, Cone, what he points out is that Niebuhr never makes this obvious relationship of imagery between the cross and the lynching tree. And, uh, and, and he's right for calling Niebuhr out about it. Niebuhr deliberately avoids it, apparently, and, and it looks to be that way. And Niebuhr even makes statements about why he doesn't want to focus on the race issue in, in some of his discussions, even though he's addressing it obliquely in other ways. He's right for calling him out about it. And, but it's also right for us to recognize that Niebuhr is addressing one community and one culture, and Cohn is addressing another community and culture. Not, I'm not saying the ethics change. I'm not saying Cohn is wrong. He's right for calling us out about having ignored this way of understanding the plight of others or how the gospel reveals itself in that plight as well. It's powerful and, and, and amazing, but it is also something we can understand if we grasp the difference in those cultures, how the metaphors would dominate the way we speak about the gospel. So it and and in this conversation about transmitting the gospel through time and how it's different in different cultures and it's going to be different whether we're speaking to those who are in servitude and poverty or if we're speaking to those who are in power and prosperity there is also a sense of how in either community in either culture we have we provide continuity for the gospel we provide continuity for the message, to get from one generation to the next, from one century to the next, and so on. And obviously, we do that, and and this is the most overt way, clearly, in words and doctrines and theology and the formal education that takes place in seminaries and reading the books of the, uh, you know, the patriarchs and so on. And, and, And it's about historical events and the associated concepts that go with them so that we would say those things are the essence of theology or the gospel. They are never pure. Everything's expressed in a cultural context, which is fine. That's just part of being human. But that means that there is a difference between the transmission of a pure gospel and the, the actual historical transmission of the gospel that takes place where we can be effective and we can be honest to the gospel, but also aware of where we have blended in a few other ingredients. And we also, by the way, practice, provide this continuity, this transmission from generation and century to the next, one century to the next, informally, in terms of the rituals that we have in our lives. Uh, and sometimes, for obviously, informal rituals as well, but those do change from one culture to the next, from one generation to the next, even though we think we're preserving exact 
ritualistic practices, we actually do change them in their form. The way we interpret them, the way we experience them, the way we couch them, what we surround them with, how we buffer them, and so on. So I'm not, I'm not even going to get into all of that. It's way more than we can talk about today. But in terms of informal rituals, you can see how we hand it down from one generation to the next. Sundays as a weekly monument of the resurrection. Holidays as annual reenactments of the incarnation. We kneel around the Christmas tree or around the nativity scene, or we put other figurines kneeling around the nativity scene. We're reenacting the incarnation and everything surrounding, not just that, but at Easter, the passion, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and so on. All of those events are a part of us in ritual, and and it's not, again, a a church-bound, smoke-filled ritual, but It is a ritual of life, the patterns of life, the way we conduct ourselves, passing it down. The problem is, if we pass down the context in place of the content, the essence of the gospel, that's the real challenge that we run into, and that's what I really wanted to talk about. This is what I really want to get to today. So the problem of passing down the context of the gospel, which is uh, legitimate, we all have contexts, in place of the essence or the content of the gospel. And I'm not being too narrow about how we talk about that essence, but think of the difference. Here's, here's where you can see how this, how this transmission can be different based on which context we're in. Think of the difference between how children come to faith. And I'm not even saying this in a, you know, let's contrast the the Catholics or the Presbyterians who practice paedobaptism with the Baptists who only practice a believer's baptism. But I'm, so just within a Baptistic sense, just within that sense of, you know, what some call adult immersion or believer's baptism, that idea. Think of the difference between how children come to faith in a more communitarian society or a more individualistic culture. Even within our faith tradition, and and when I say our, I'm a Baptist. You know, I'm president of Criswell College. Baptistic doctrines matter to me. So that's fine. I, I saw the difference in a communitarian setting, which we have to go elsewhere to find that. We don't have any communitarian settings in our immediate context, and I mean by that, American. But we can grasp what it means, and I've been to a few places where there are communitarian settings. In a communitarian setting, there is this strong sense of the importance and even the natural tendency to transmit the content and the practice of our faith from one generation to the next. So I saw, and you say, well, I have a strong sense of that too. You you do, but it's different, and I'll explain what I mean by this. I saw it in Indian culture first, most evidently. I knew what it was, but I hadn't seen it until I went to Odisha, uh, Orissa, Odisha now, in India, and watched their families interact. And I mean, these are families that were members of a Baptist church that a Baptist missionary had established decades before and had become this really mature expression of Indian Christian faith, uh, this South Asian commitment to Christ. And the the interesting thing about this is how incorporated into family life and church life the assumption of the next generation's commitment, and I mean within those families, commitment to that church, to that faith was. It was an assumption 
the individual still makes it their own at some point, but it's by maturing into the faith they've already adopted. It's not normally in this profound decision to be made at some point about whether they're going to be in the faith. It's not that. It's almost like, uh, you know, just arriving at the point of confirmation uh, in that culture. Just completely different setting. Now, again, children are expressing their commitment to faith, and they're having those evangelistic-type events and so on. But it is a transition for them from childhood to adulthood, not from pagan lostness into a Christian now who's finally got a future in the faith. Now, again, I'm, I'm generalizing, but, but that is the experience that I saw happening there. And in an individualist setting like ours in America, there is still a, tr- a strong transmission because the habits and rituals and taking the kids to church, you know, I was, I was, uh, you know, I was, I was a drugged child. I was drugged to church on Sunday and Wednesday, you know, those kinds of, that, that kind of language that people use. Those habits and rituals uh, do transmit the faith from one generation to the next. That's all good. But its limitation is apparent in this, in the caution, which is not unwarranted. Again, I'm not choosing one culture over the other. I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying you can see the difference between the two cultures in the caution parents have when their young children begin expressing their faith. Well, now are you sure they understand? Now, you know, can can they really comprehend what sin means? Do they understand the triune God? I'm just kidding about that. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but it is, you know what I'm talking about. A six-year-old wants to express their faith. We're like, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. They, they, they may just be thinking of their mom or dad's faith. Well, that's the point if I were in India. But in America, it's like, oh, no, 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 they're not, they're not ready yet. You know, keep them at arm's length. We need to keep them out of the faith. And again, there's reason for that. There's justification for that. I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't be cautious when you're dealing with a young child because that is our culture and it is a part of the individualism that we understand in our society. But the, so the differences are all well and good. That's fine. But what, what happens that's not all well and fine is if we replace the content or the practice of the actual faith about the death and resurrection of Christ, right? At, if we replace that with our context, with the things that are about how our children come to faith in contrast to how children in India come to faith, as an example. If we replace the content and practice of our actual faith, the content of the gospel, with the difference in the context within which we received our faith, then we're coming to a bad place, a dangerous place. I, I was this way. I was this judgmental at one point in my journey as a believer uh, and, and a pastor. And I've communicated where I came from, a much more pharisaical, legalistic sense than I'm at now, which you may find hard to believe that that could even be the case. But yes, I, I was worse. So I, and, 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 and the perfect example for me is just thinking back to Oakland, California, when I went to San Francisco on a, on a uh, sort of discovery mission type trip uh, just to just to see how believers were practicing their faith in that area and how uh, pastors and denominational leaders were working in that context, which is, it is significantly different uh, than where I lived in Dallas, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so I went to church, not in, and, and we went to church one day, we went to church in uh, a, a San Francisco area, Bay Church, but then we also crossed over and went in Oakland, California, which if you're not familiar with, 
the difference is apparent in the San Francisco 49ers versus the Oakland Raiders, right? I mean, those are different communities. We're talking one of the wealthiest communities in America in the fan base for the 49ers and one of, well, a blue-collar community. I'll just put it that way, a blue-collar community in the supporters of the Oakland Raiders. And you can tell it in the nature of the teams, by the way. Or at least you used to be able to. I'm not as close to those teams as I used to be. I mean, when Roger Staubach was playing, I kept up with everything. Now, not so much. I know he didn't play for them. I am a Dallas Cowboys fan. Still, because Roger Staubach played for them back then. Anyway, back to reality here. So I went to this church in Oakland, California. It's it's a massive church. I mean, they have a lot of social media. It's what we would consider a mega church, okay? So I, I was I was at this church, but it, it didn't express itself in the same way that I was used to seeing it expressed. And in that church service where I heard a really great uh, orator give a really brilliant message, as I would have communicated it then, now I would say, I mean, I heard a great preacher and a great sermon. But all the metaphors about our liberty and the faith were about enslavement and emancipation. They were all about economic deliverance and so on. That's all the metaphors about it instead of being about what I was used to, psychological guilt and the freedom we receive from it because we're forgiven for our sins and we can obtain peace in ourselves and self-actualization, even though we never say the words and so on. I didn't like the change in metaphors, and I could barely accept that they were preaching the gospel, despite the fact that the pastor was clearly proclaiming the death and resurrection of Christ and his lordship in this world as the center of faith that brings freedom to his hearers and to ours. But because the metaphors were different, because the context was different, I had a hard time recognizing the gospel. I'm embarrassed to think back about that. The idea that we have transmitted as much individualism and American heritage, which, again, are great, We're blessed to have the culture that we have. It's not a condemnation of different cultures. It's a condemnation of being so narrowly minded that we blend the culture into the essence of the gospel. The idea that we've transmitted as much individualism and American heritage in our faith as we have gospel into our faith, it shouldn't shock us it, it, it probably does feel like an insult, but it shouldn't shock us because our culture is built into us. I'm not even asking us to escape our culture. It's part of us. That's who we are. But the, and, and in fact, it's, it's something we should recognize and distinguish and acknowledge and not lament, but handle, deal with so clearly that it's built into the early church as well. The early church had exactly the same problem we do and with something we think would be even easier to confuse with the faith. They're Judaic traditions, the ones received by tradition from the days when God himself converted Israel from a loose band of nomads to a settled culture, handed them stone tablets from a mountain, and said, this is what you will be. And yet, they had to come to, to, to recognize, they had to come to grips with the fact that their commitment to Judaic tradition and history, even handed to them from a mountain by God, needed to be distinguished from the gospel, which is what they did, not just their abuse of it, 
not just the Phariseeism, the law itself, Moses himself, had to be extracted. The history of of this Judaic way of reading the gospel had to be extracted from the gospel so that, not so they could separate it from the Jews who were in the gospel. They're just Jews in the gospel. That wasn't a problem. The problem was that they were communicating that part to the Gentiles who had nothing to do with that Judaic tradition. And so in Acts 15, the question of whether Gentiles becoming Christians need to become Jewish is settled in two speeches, one by Peter, one by James. And really, in just three verses, James resolves the whole thing, sort of this arbiter of the meeting of the minds of the apostles and the other believers about what they were going to do about Gentiles who were turning to the faith. And so in, ver- in, in, this, in this point, in Acts 15, when they're asking this question, the, the resolution confuses people, and, we, and, and I learned this when I went through the book of Acts not long ago. That was when I finally resolved this, because otherwise, Acts 15 reads so strangely. It's like, well, the gospel's just about our salvation by grace through faith. Oh, and also about not uh, drinking, you know, the blood of animals and not participating in these sacrifices and not getting involved in these sexual practices. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Is the gospel simple or not? What's going on here? And the answer is the gospel is simple. And the whole point of that chapter and, and the surrounding narratives, by the way, is to learn to separate the core of the gospel from the context within which we are experiencing it without pretending that we can eliminate the cultural context within which we're experiencing it. So here are these three verses, and you'll get the idea. First of all, in Acts, these are in Acts 15 when they're resolving the issue. So when James gives his resolution, therefore the resolution, my judgment is this. This is how he resolves it. My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So the resounding answer to the question, well, do we have to communicate our culture to the, to the people who are coming to faith? James's answer is no. If you say, well, I don't get it from that statement that that's what he's saying, he's responding to Peter's message. Here's Peter's message. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to those Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. So it's that simple. It's salvation by grace. You don't have to adopt our culture. And that's the Judaic culture that God had given them. But in verse 20, he goes on to say this, but we're not going to pretend they're not joining a Jewish community. Because the early church was a Jewish community of people who turned to faith in the Messiah as their Savior. So in verse 20, he says, but you should write to them that they acknowledge the community they're becoming a part of, that they abstain from things, these most offensive things in the Jewish culture, things polluted by blood from sexual immorality, from what's been strangled and from blood. The concession, this is a concession. The answer is that they don't have to change their culture to become Christian. The gospel doesn't require that. But being a part of the community of faith does require a concession on our part. You acknowledge the community you're becoming a part of. The concession is that they can still be respectful of the culture within which they've received the gospel. But they can remember that, you know, that cult, and and in fact, we should remember, that culture was a challenge to the gospel throughout the New Testament era. In, In every, and by the way, in every culture since, 
in every letter, Paul's correcting the Jewish believers not to get tangled up in the law in the wrong way, not to mingle it together with the gospel and so on. And obviously, every culture since has had the same problem in different ways. Roman imperialism, medieval divine right, Renaissance, separations and reformations and the forms that those took, and the radical reformation, modern individualism and liberty. And again, I'm not even saying any of those cultures were evil, even though there were evil aspects to a lot of those cultures. I'm simply saying they were different cultures, and so they expressed Christianity differently. The flavor of the culture within which we communicate the gospel from one generation to the next can easily overwhelm the flavor of the gospel itself. That's James's warning about Judaism itself as a culture. This is why he says at the end, his conclusion to the Jerusalem Council is to say, look, from the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him because he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So let's not get tangled up advocating for Moses, is what James is saying. But instead, say to people, hey, you're coming to a church that's Jewish, so be respectful of the Jewish believers who are here. But we're all saved the same way, by grace through faith. It's a a really beautiful message about the core of the gospel being separate from our concession that we live in a culture and our acknowledgement that that culture cannot be made essential to the gospel without us corrupting the gospel. The concession means that it's important to contextualize the gospel, not just outwardly to the culture, but inwardly when people come into the faith. So, you know, practical expression here. If a black man joins a white church and experiences, I mean black with a capital B, if a black man joins a white church and experiences a different culture surrounding the gospel, that's not surprising. That's going to be different than the white woman who joins a black church right? I mean, they're going to experience the gospel with different metaphors and with different cultural expressions. This is not a surprise. Within both of those contexts, the concession to walk respectfully within the traditions of that culture is an acknowledgement of the value of the people with whom we now share our faith in the core of the gospel. But also, within both of those cultures, the acknowledgement of the community that the concessions of the outsider should be limited. There's, you know, there were only a handful of things in Acts 15 that were to be communicated to outsiders to say, well, let's be respectful of the Jews who are Christians, who are in these congregations that you're joining. That, that acknowledgement that, that we, we only have a limited number of things where we say, well, just let's be respectful of the congregation here, is the acknowledgement that the culture is dangerously poised to bury the gospel with baggage that's extraneous or even harmful to the gospel. A couple of examples, yeah. Uh, Gun culture did this not long ago. I've got guns. I love shooting. I don't love shooting living things very well. I get it. I can do it. I can hunt. But I'm bigger on shooting targets and clay pigeons and stuff like that. It's more fun for me. Gun culture in the South, prominent feature of being in the South. And it is in a lot of other regions, too. I, I love that. I don't mind that. I think it's cool. It's all good. Gun culture, though, clouded the gospel not long ago when you saw a church threaten deadly violence against any government enforcement of a COVID restriction at their church. We'll meet you at the door with our guns. (laughs) That's covering up the gospel with your culture. 
It doesn't even make your culture evil. It just means you've confused the culture of the gospel with the culture that you grew up in. And let me restate that, the essence of the gospel with the culture that you grew up in. On the opposite end, by the way, the LGBTQ community has done this by making transgenderism part of the meaning of being transformed in the gospel. That's an abuse of passages in Scripture and what they actually talk about in the renewing of the mind. So everybody can do it on both sides. All cultures can cloud the gospel if we don't recognize the difference. Do the Jerusalem Council work of saying, no, 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 we remember the essence of the gospel is this. The way we express it is here. It's always going to be expressed culturally because we live in a culture. So we can offer a concession by saying, hey, let's be respectful of that culture, but we also do recognize the difference. Here's the point. Here's the conclusion. If we were running a gospel restaurant, <laughs> work with me on this, I would not be saying to you, we need a, we need a robot. I've been, I've been to restaurants lately where they have robots deliver the food. No kidding to the table. Like, uh, you know, a, a little, it, it's, a, it's just a set of trays, but they have a, a, a friendly smiling face at the top of it to make it look like it's got some kind of personality to it. A robot deliver food to the table. I'm not saying we need a robot to deliver sterile food dishes in the gospel. I'm not saying that our gospel message, and this is absurd, you can't do this. I'm not saying that our gospel message has to be hermetically sealed from the culture. No one does that, and and we shouldn't pretend that we do. But I would be saying this. The cooks need to put on a hairnet. Maybe wear some gloves. At least wash your hands, right? that our culture, that is, needs to be prevented. And I mean the culture in us, not the culture outside of us, the culture that's inside of you. Our culture needs to be prevented from polluting or confusing or infusing the gospel with itself as much as possible. And we, the servers, need to keep our fingers and spit out of the dishes when we deliver them that our messages need to look and taste like the one Jesus brought to the world and the apostles preserved for us and everyone else. Look, we will never, it's this simple, we will never sterilize the gospel of our culture, but we can value and present the gospel beyond our culture. Let's remember to do that in our churches and in our daily lives. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamy. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.